Well, welcome to quantum number 165, and this one's another special. We're going to look at a subject that I'm a bit tentative about looking at, and that is climate change. It's not easy being green, having to spend each day the color of the leaves. As I was recording this, uh, Boris Johnson was giving uh, a speech citing Kermit the Frog, suggesting that it's time for humanity to grow up. Here's a little bit of it. And green can be big, like a mountain, or important, like a river, or tall like a tree. Kermit the Frog sang. It's not easy being green. You remember that one? I want you to know that he was wrong. He was wrong. It is easy. It's not only easy, it's lucrative and it's right to be green. He was also unnecessarily rude to Miss Piggy, I thought, uh, Kermit the Frog. But it is easy uh, to be green. We have the technology, as we used to say when I was a when I was a kid. We can do it. We have, so, so in 40 days time, we have the choice before us. Now, we're going to ask first of all, what I'm trying to do here is to give an explanation of what climate change is. I've been reading about this and thinking about it for a long time. Um, yeah, you have, you know, I struggle with the whole issue, to be honest, because I'm trying to understand what's going on and Understanding is not helped by all the shouting. So what is climate change? Well, if we're going to find that out, you'd think we would just go to the media, but that doesn't work. Why? I'll give you two examples. First is the BBC. Uh, I've recently saw an internal audience research briefing telling their staff, training their staff on how to get across the climate change message. Now, the BBC, there, there's no question for them. The, the, the everything is absolutely fixed on this. It's a matter of, of absolute doctrine for them. And so they describe seven groups of viewers and how to appeal to them about climate change. Progressive activists, civic pragmatists, established liberals, loyal nationals, disengaged battlers, backbone conservatives, and disengaged traditionalists. Don't expect the BBC to bring you any variety or shades on this at all, nor many others. Let's take Facebook. Now, Facebook, having set themselves up as the uh, criteria for everything truthful about COVID and vaccines, as have the other Californian billionaire companies, tech companies, they're now doing the same with climate change. Although for some environmentalists, that's not enough. So they've got a climate science center with more facts, quizzes and videos. They're investing one million in grants to groups working to combat climate misinformation. And they have, uh, <laughs> they've got their quote-unquote independent fact-checkers. Now, as I was writing this, a tweet came through that's Bjorn Lomberg, who's some of you will know as an environmentalist, but who's sceptical about some aspects of climate change. And he had written an article for The Sun, censoring the facts about climate change doesn't make for better policy. Guess what? Facebook censored it as false information checked by independent fact-checkers. No, they're not. They're not independent fact-checkers. They don't deal in facts. 
This is about propaganda. And that's one of the problems we have. And that's one of the reasons why I'm making this podcast. Because where can you go for reliable information? It's slanted so much. And, you know, I mean, we've got to ask what's happening. So we've got European floods and Greek fires and Chinese floods. What about Australia, by the way? A year and a half ago, you were hearing about how Australia is burning. Have you heard anything about Australia recently? Apart from us turning into some kind of dystopian police state? On climate change? No. Why not? Because we've had a great couple of years. Because I think this is going to be the biggest harvest ever. Because it's, things have not been burning. Now, I imagine in six months' time, it's possible they will be again, and all of a sudden you'll get the catastrophizing. So you will have the impression that Australia is always burning, but you don't hear when things are good. There's another aspect to this as well, and I'm going to come on to some of the information, but um, we do always have climate change, don't we? And we're thinking about what causes it. I'll come to some of the basic facts in a moment. But let me give you a summary of a United Nations report. Within 10 years, entire nations will be wiped off the face of the earth. There will be coastal flooding in Bangladesh and in Egypt. There will be crop failures and there will be eco-refugees. Governments have 10 years to solve the greenhouse effect before global warming destroys us. That's a UN report. That's what we were being warned about. Not this year but on the 30th of June, 1989. Ten years left to save the world. We were told the same in 1972, in 1982, in 1990, in 2019. And this year, it's code red for humanity. Okay, let me just take a a wee break to play an apocalyptic song. Okay, now what I want to do is give you a summary of the, the basic facts. I've gleaned these from various different sources, uh, and I, I, I don't think there's too much dispute in any of these. The climate crisis. Well, first of all, it's global warming. They say, you know, the warming is caused by us. The warming is dangerous. We have to urgently transition to what they call net zero, to, re- to new, new, renewable energy to stop the warming. Once we do that, sea level rise will stop and the weather won't be so extreme. Now, net zero emissions means achieving an overall balance between greenhouse gas emissions produced and greenhouse gas emissions taken out of the atmosphere. It is a bit like a set of scales. What's wrong with this narrative? Number one, we vastly oversimplified both the problem and its solutions. Number two. The complexity uncertainty is being kept away from the public policy debate. Everything is simplified. Number three, the proposed solutions are 
technologically and politically infeasible on a global scale. Uh, th these are notes of a, a, a lecture that was given a while ago, not by me, and I just thought this was a very, very good summary. Number four, there's an overemphasis on the role of man-made climate change in societal problems. Now, it seems to me that these are fairly indisputable. Some other facts. 97% of climate scientists agree that surplus temperatures have increased since 1880 and that humans are adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere and that carbon dioxide, as well as other greenhouse gases, have a warming effect on the planet. I don't think we're going to dispute that. But here's where the disagreement occurs amongst scientists. How much of the warming has been caused by humans? How much will the planet warm in the 21st century? Whether warming itself is actually dangerous? and how we should respond to the warming and improve human flourishing, if you like. So then the next question is, should we urgently reduce emissions to prevent warming? Now, all of our governments seem to assume that. Though they're not going to do it, but that's what COP21 or 22 or 20 is all about. That's what's going on in Glasgow in a few weeks' time. So they're saying, yes, we've got to go for net zero by 2050. It's a precautionary principle. This will prevent future dangerous warming of the climate and we need renewable energy. No, those who say no say any immediate reduction in warming would be extremely minimal and at extremely high cost. The cure would be worse than the disease. It would require a global reduction in emissions, which is not going to happen. China, India, Brazil, South Korea... It's not going to happen. So we've just got to make economies strong and try and see how we can deal with this in a more sensible and less hysterical way. And then we also need to think about the fact that everything is going to be filtered through this climate change filter. Everything bad is going to be blamed on it. We had an earthquake in Melbourne. As yet, uh, nobody here is blaming climate change for it. But that's where we're heading. That sets out the scenario. And I'm sorry that's taken so long. Now, our governments, the UK government in particular, is obsessed. And, and, and the American government is obsessed with this. Listen to this from uh, the Andrew Marr show. And I put it to you that the reason that you can't give me answers on this is that it's simply eye-wateringly expensive. To remove a gas boiler and put in a heat pump costs around... £10,000 per house. Yeah. And, and given it. that the average household income is about £30,000 mm. a house, that is an eye-watering amount. Well, and Andrew, as I said, I mean, you've got manufacturers like Octopus Energy who are talking about halving the cost from 10000 to 5000 And you've seen this with economies of scale. When you have scaling up, prices do come down. I'm confident that will happen. On the eye-watering increase in gas prices, should people now be bracing themselves for the possibility of shortages of frozen foods and other products? Well, Andrew, I mean, people, of course, will be very concerned by what they're reading in the papers, what they're hearing on the news. Uh, but you will know that the business secretary has been having very detailed discussions over the weekend. He'll continue those uh, on Monday with the sector. 
And I think the the clear well well the, the, the clear message that has come out so far is that people shouldn't be concerned about the risk to supply. In fact, uh, a significant part of our gas supplies comes domestically. Uh, the imported gas primarily will comes from countries like Norway. Uh, so we are secure in that. But of course, when it comes to prices, there will be concern as well. But we have the energy price gap. Uh, we have the warm homes discount to protect people at this particular time. If gas prices carry on rising... Now, you see, there are consequences to the actions that we take. There's been a 70% increase in, in gas prices. You'll notice that there was also mentioned the green cap. The government put a tax on energy. And what that does, it affects the poor most. And that money is used to subsidise the rich. So you've got... The, the climate change thing is a wonderful way to take money from the poor and give it to the rich. It's no wonder that the rich like it. Now, there is a huge problem. There's going to be a huge problem in Europe and a huge problem in the UK because sometimes the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. And, you know, when you've got the government saying we're going to get rid of gas boilers, it's £10,000 per house that we have to pay to change our heating systems. And then comes this whole issue of China. Will China step up and do this? Now, the Chinese have just announced that they're not going to build coal fire plants in other countries. And we'll see if that happens. But the last time I looked, they were building 50 new coal-fired plants, 50 per year. China is going to produce more emissions than all of the developed world put together. And for all the talk, they're not going to do it. So China's 28% of global emissions. The UK is 1%. Do you seriously think that the UK switching from gas boilers to heat pipes or something is really going to make that significant a difference? I don't think it is. And what about India? And what about Japan? And what about South Korea? Okay, here's a report from Bloomberg. Faced with surging gas and electricity prices, countries from the UK to Germany will need to count on mild temperatures to get through the heating season. Europe is short of gas and coal, and if the wind doesn't blow, the worst-case scenario could play out. Widespread blackouts that force businesses and factories to shut. The unprecedented energy crunch has been brewing for years, with Europe growing increasingly dependent on intermittent sources of energy, such as wind and solar, while investments in fossil fuels declined. Environmental policy has also pushed some countries to shut their coal and nuclear fleets, reducing the number of power plants that could serve as backup in times of shortages. And you know what's going to happen here? You know, it's funny, isn't it? In COVID, we've all got to wear masks and fill the seas with plastic, billions of plastic masks to save people's lives. But we're going to switch off heat and light and kill people for the sake of this ideology. There's something deeply wrong with it. And then there's such extremism. Listen to this from Caroline Lucas. I am saying that in extreme situations, it is reasonable to take extreme actions. And that is what has driven these protesters to do that. Personally, I prefer to take action where it is closer to the target of that action. So that might be Downing Street. It might be the Treasury. But I fully understand why protesters have felt driven to do something more dramatic than that because government has been ignoring all of those kinds of actions for many, many years. We face an existential crisis, an emergency, and we need to take emergency action now. Now, you see what she's doing? She's defending these, these 
Extinction Rebellion extremists. And, you know, I, I do think one of the forms of te major terrorism we're going to be faced is eco-terrorism. And because our elites have bought into this whole ideology, they're going to find it so much easier. And it's such hypocrisy. Such hypocrisy. So, um, Allegra Shatton, the, the spokesperson for the COP22 climate talks in Glasgow, and Alec Sharma, the president of the upcoming COP26 climate talk, they, have, they are both asking the government to force petrol and diesel cars off the road in favour of electric vehicles. Guess what? They both own diesel cars. Gail Bradbrook, who's the founder of Extinction Rebellion, also drives a diesel car. So they're blocking the roads in London to stop people driving their cars. And they have diesel cars, the cars that pollute more than any other. Incidentally, let me confess, I bought a diesel car. Why? When I bought it, it was what the experts said was the environmentally friendly thing to do. I bought it as a green thing. Be careful with these experts. Okay, I've listed all these different things. And, you know, what, what does the church have to do with this? Well, I, I think it's fairly straightforward at one level. As Christians, we believe that God created this earth and we are to be stewards of it. But we also, I think, have the humility to realize we can't control the climate. We can pollute, yes, of course, and we can cease pollution to some degree. But the idea that we can control glo global temperature is an absurd one and one that's designed to fail. But it's interesting. Here is, um, you know, religions and church people just love to jump on this stuff. So here's the Church of Scotland moderator. Our faith communities are united in caring for human life and the natural world. We share a belief in a hopeful future, as well as an obligation to be responsible in caring for our common home, the earth. We recognize the opportunity that COP26 brings in addressing the urgent need for action, in limiting the effects of climate change and the critical importance of decisions made in this conference to take forward the agreement made in Paris in 2015. People have exploited the planet, causing climate change. We recognize that the burden of loss and damage falls most heavily on people living in poverty, especially women and children. We acknowledge the commitments made through the Lambeth Declaration in 2015. Now, now that's an interfaith group. Um, they don't appear to have a great deal of interest. Last time I looked, had about 120 looks on their on their YouTube video, and that's for all meant to be all the religions in Scotland. But it doesn't matter, of course. The BBC will feature it. Others will feature it because it's singing the right creation hymn tune, isn't it? 
Well, you'll find... I'm sorry, I'm going to be controversial here. The Church of Scotland has given up on God, but it's found itself a new religion. And I think it will be this religion. Now, again, don't get me wrong. It is important for us to care for the climate. What do we say when we talk about it as a new religion? I've got a book I'm going to recommend to you. uh, Michael Schellenberger's Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. For me, it's a shattering book because Schellenberger is an environmentalist at the top of his game. He's a green activist. And this book about environmental alarmism is actually quite alarming and brilliant. He says that many people, most people, are ignorant of the basic facts. And he talks about the false religion of the new environmentalist activist movement. And by the way, isn't it fascinating that he now advocates using nuclear as the most carbon-friendly fuel? And actually, he's convinced me I was totally anti-nuclear, but here's something else on which I've changed my mind. I think, especially in Australia and in other countries, we should be building nuclear power plants. That's maybe for another topic. <laughs> or take this bit from Jordan Peterson. It's by no means obvious that we know how to stop it anyways. And it certainly isn't clear that we know what measures should be taken. I mean, the Americans have actually decreased their carbon output. I think it's 14% over the last 10 years. Why? Fracking. Now, you have to find me one progressive who bloody well predicted that. People jump up and down about climate change and they say the science is settled and you're a flat earth or a backward son of a bitch if you don't agree with it. But that is just a proxy for their claim that I know how to deal with it. And these policies, all of which just happen to be progressive, are the only means by which this can possibly be redressed. And that is not only patently untrue, it's, it's quite clear to me that in all probability, the cure is going to be far greater than the disease. Oh, absolutely. You, well, take, just take Canada at the present minute. We're in the election again. Climate change, global warming, saving the world, the COP meetings, the IPCC. This, this, is, this is to Justin Trudeau, his idea of the Eucharist. And he hired mm-hmm. one of the most, mm-hmm. right. most adamant, intense climate activists ever, Gerald Butts, to be his principal man. This is the key big idea. And it's obsessional, ritualistic, and in, in Trudeau's case, possibly even religious. Yes, so, I agree that it's. I agree it, that it's religious. I, one of the things I've been thinking through psychologically most recently is the it's the psychological ramifications and the political ramifications of the old New Testament statement: to "Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God, God's." And the problem seems to me to be psychologically is that once you stop rendering unto God what is God, so you, you, you muddy up the religious domain, you remove it, then all sorts of things that shouldn't become, that shouldn't be religious, become religious. There's no getting rid of the instinct. It just transfers to something else. Well, and this land, save the planet mentality. Well, your, that, land, that, acknowledge, your land acknowledgements are, are a ritual. Now, right. it's interesting, isn't it? You talk about being Eucharistic and sacred books and there's priests of the new religion. I do think that this green environment, it's, it's, it's a, a religion and, and it's largely not backed up with facts and Part of it comes, what's going on in our culture, is what some people have called apocalypse porn. Newspapers love pictures of, you know, burning forests or uh, flooded villages. And it's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world. The end is nigh. Doom, doom, doom. Gloom, gloom. Apocalyptic is going to be a word that's used a lot. 
was a fascinating report of a survey of 10,000 children that was done in the world and uh, where three quarters of them, these were, I say children, they were young people aged 16 to 25. Three quarters agreed the future is frightening. 31% felt their governments were doing enough to avoid catastrophe and 39% are hesitant to have children. Um, this is extraordinary. We are indoctrinating fear into our children. Now, our governments don't mind doing that because fear is how they control people. They've learned that with COVID, but they overplayed their hand. And my fear is that's precisely what they're going to do with this. Anyway, here's an example of children's indoctrination. That's for teachers, homeschoolers and educators. And guess what? In primary schools and secondary schools all over the UK and Australia and America, and particularly in Maoist Scotland, or Sturgeonist Scotland, beg your pardon, uh, not much difference, you, you know, children are, are going to be fed this nightmare. The world is going to end soon unless we do something. When this report came out, I heard an expert, inverted commas, on BBC Radio Scotland saying, this just shows we need to listen to the young people. No, it doesn't. It shows you need to stop feeding hysteria. And this feeding of hysteria really does have consequences. You need to be really careful about it. You know, the kind of anti-vaxxers, dare I say this, I mean, there are people who don't want to take a vaccine for a good reason. Okay, fair enough. But there are other people who just, you know, think it's a Bill Gates thing and everything. You know, that kind of thing is, is ludicrous and wrong. But these climate alarmists are worse than anti-vaxxers, and the consequence of what they're saying is seen in so many ways. So take an article from the Weekend Australian, uh, where 50 young men are going to the doctor, I think, I can't remember how many it was, per week, one Sydney clinician, Dr. Justin Law, is doing 50 vasectomies per week, and almost half of them are childless men. It's a huge increase. And the reason for it? The biggest one is just a pretty negative outlook for the future. I'm not happy about having that view. view. I look at optimists and I really envy them. This is someone who's getting it. Who, and he says, but I just see mounting problems in the world and a lack of action and solution. With the challenges I'm betting humanity will face, the fact is it's not just something I'm happy to impose on a child. Well, I've got news for you. I am absolutely certain that the crisis we are most likely to face within the next decade, in the West anyway, and I think in many other countries, is not, is not overpopulation, but underpopulation. Birth rates, in, in 1964, the number of children per woman averaged 2.93. 2020, it was 1.58, well below the 2.1 needed to keep the population stable. In Scotland, it's 1.29. In Scotland, it's 1.29. 
we're aborting tens of thousands of children every year. We're discouraging people from having children. We're instilling fear in people. Where do you think all this apocalyptic talk is going to lead? Okay, I'm conscious of time, so I want to see where we're going with all of this and what can be done. I do think that uh, Schellenberger is correct, that technology and nuclear technology could be one way forward. And that's where I come back to the Dutch. You know, the Dutch live in a land half of which is beneath sea level. They've managed to cope with flooding. They've built a wonderful country. They are great engineers. And that's what we should be looking at. If we go the route that the climate activists want to go, you know what's going to happen? Rich people are going to fly all over the world to have conferences to tell other people not to fly. The poor are really going to suffer in developing nations and in already developed nations. Okay, um, let me mention one other source, www.realclimatescience.com. Uh, I found that extremely helpful. And then maybe I should lighten things a little bit. This is the Australian comedian, Steve Hughes. Oh, the, by the way, the, the planet's broken. <laughs> it's all warmed up. And uh, yeah, we have to fix it because uh, we've broken it. And, uh, you know, we've done tests. Who has? You know, experts. <laughs> Who are they? Oh, don't worry about it. They're here. <laughs> what are you talking about? I don't even believe in it. People freak out. What do you mean you don't believe in it? I don't believe in it. You have to believe in it. It's the law. Well, it's not yet. I'm sure it will be. But until then, no. <laughs> Why should I believe in it? What are you talking about? They're running around the world, dropping depleted uranium all over the earth, sitting there, letting nuclear weapons off underneath the sea, and the rest of us, what are we going to do? Sit at home with a special light bulb and a shopping bag for life. That's very politically incorrect. I doubt he'd be allowed on the BBC now. And then I'm going to mention my uh, podcast. I'm being a top ten of podcasts. And my number two, it's a little bit of a cheat because although I can get it on pod various podcasts, I usually watch it on YouTube. And that's this wonderful program. I'm sorry I haven't a clue. And I don't know. I suspect um, that's an apposite title for uh, a lot of the dealings with uh, climate change. Here's just a small sample. Okay, the first round is called How Wrong Can You Get? This was suggested to us by the BBC long-term planning unit set up by Greg Dyke. <laughs> With misplaced optimism very much in mind, teams, I'd like you to suggest examples of remarks made by famous people from the dawn of civilization onwards which seriously misjudged the course of history. Tim? Alfred the Great, you can always rely on Delia's recipes. <laughs> Moses, boats, of course you need boats, how are we going to get across otherwise? <laughs> King Harold, right man, we're going into this with our eyes wide open. <laughs> Saddam Hussein. They'll never find me in here. (laughs) 
All right. Um, that's us done, I think. I'm sorry if this is a wee bit longer than usual, but these specials, I'm trying to encompass the whole thing. So just to summarize where we're at, we do believe that there is evidence that there is global warming. We don't know how much of it is uh, man-made. Some of it clearly is. We're not sure what can be done about it. It's a much more complex situation than you are going to hear. We have to stop the apocalyptic fear. Do you know, I'm going through Romans 8, and I just love this. The whole creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time, longing for the children of God to be revealed. Gus Spieth, who was a climate scientist, he was a founder and trustee emeritus, former administrator of the United Nations Development Programme, and a former chairman of the Council on Environmental Quality. This is what he says. And think about this. This is very beautiful and profound. I used to think that the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought that 30 years of good science could address these problems. I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with these, we need a cultural and spiritual transformation. And we scientists don't know how to do that. And I'm going to leave you with with the Dutch again, with uh, a Dutch version of Psalm 51, because I do think that humility and repentance is what we need. Was my bitter and sneer, was my schoon van mijn schuld, see my offer in my berouw. God bless you. See you next week for a kind of normal one. Um, I've just sent out a message to those of you who support me through the Podbean fundraiser. If you'd like to do that, please go on to it uh, and I'll send you a message as well. Um, I'm just explaining some of the things that are going on in my own life and and stuff that's been happening. And uh, yeah, come back next week and... Please feel free to pass this on to others. It's good that this is going all over the world and that the number of people who are listening is increasing every week. And I'm very thankful for that. you got any any other ideas coming back in? If you want to discuss any of these issues, please feel free to write me. Don't get mad at me. Don't shoot me. I'm only the messenger. I'm not the message. And you can, if I've got things wrong, just correct them. Think for yourself. God bless you. Think for yourself and follow Jesus. I think that's my motto. God bless you and see you next week. Was my witter am sneer, maak my sterk door uw geest. Schep een zuiver hart in mij. Laat mij dicht bij u zijn, u alleen hier geneest. Van mijn zonde en schuld spreek mij vrij. Was mijn witte dans neer, laat mij rein voor u staan. Zie niet om naar wat ik heb gedaan.
som sned Lad mig regn for østern Se dit ånd har vært 